This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and I'm thrilled to bring you our first YA Spectacular of 2022. First up, Sarah McDooling sits down with Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner to discuss the sequel to last year's bestseller, The Other Side of the Sky, Beyond the End of the World. Then, Sarah sits down with Vanessa Len, author of the incredible new YA, Only a Monster. Check the show notes below for timestamps to both interviews, as well as links to all books mentioned. Now over to Sarah's interview with Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner, authors of Beyond the End of the World. Hello, I'm Sarah McDooling, and I am so delighted to be talking today with one of my all-time favourite writing duos, Amy Kaufman and Megan Spinner, about their latest book, Beyond the End of the World. Amy and Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us back. Yeah, it's so great to be talking to you. Now, for everyone listening, would you mind just uh, outlining a little bit about what readers can expect in Beyond the End of the World? That's kind of tough to do without... Uh giving major spoilers for the first book. I mean, I think the one thing that I that we could definitely point to is that there is a twist in it that, I mean, you know, yeah, readers will have to judge for themselves, but I think is probably the biggest twist that either of us have written, which is, I know, a big call, but... Yeah, we do like our twists in our books, but I do think this is, like, one of the biggest, if not the biggest one, and it's one that we've uh been waiting to pull off since before we ever even started writing books together i mean we've been waiting to do this one for at least 10 years wow mm-hmm. yeah. i mean it, it is a big call for anyone familiar with any of your books you are masters of pulling off twists but this one is mind-blowing um i obviously we can't talk about it so we, <laughs> we have to <laughs> but um we just have to taunt people I mean, as for the rest of the plot, I think, you know, we, without spoiling, we can say that book one ended on a cliffhanger and that's what you get when you read a duology. Mm-hmm. Very true. But book two will certainly answer the very substantial questions that were raised in, in book one. And so. Yeah, and, and like, trust us to give you what you want after reading book one, I would say. I think that uh, mm. anyone who had anything in book one that they really enjoyed, you will get more of it, you will get the answers to it, you will get the resolutions, it will it will be worth it. It's a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to write for that reason. I was just gonna say, having read the book, I 100% agree. I feel like a, a really horrible twist has, like a really horrible cliffhanger, I mean to say, like when you're left on a cliffhanger and it's just <laughs> agonizing, as was um, the first book. I feel like the follow-up book has to justify the pain um that you've been left on and that a hundred percent happens with me oh, that's so great i love that yeah. i love the way you put that that it has to justify the pain of the ending of book one i think that i think that works really well i think that's very well yeah and i think you know one of the great pleasures of writing a sequel particularly when it's a duology and so in book two you don't have to save anything for later is you can do it really thinking only of the readers of book one in book one you know you're bringing a, a wide audience into the book But book two is going to be comprised of people who loved what you did in book one, which means you can do more of that for them. You can take them deeper into that kind of story. And we had a lot of fun doing that with book two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
What would you say would be, was there anything really difficult or really surprising that you encountered a challenge while writing this book? Well, the biggest challenge, honestly, mm -hmm. is the fact that this is the first book that we have ever written where we've had to do it entirely start to finish without ever being in a room together. Um, because of the pandemic, of course, I can't, I mean, I usually visit Australia at least once a year. Uh, and Amy's usually in the States, you know, at least once a year. So we always make a point of getting together. And even when we're not trying to work, we still end up sort of telling each other stories because that's really how we became friends and sort of part of the, the genetic makeup of our friendship. And so these ideas and these um, sort of twists and character arcs sort of come out when we're together, you know, sometimes in spite of our efforts to not be working. And, you know, when we're not able to be in a room together, we have to consciously do that we have to make space for that and you know we've done a lot of zoom calls and we've done a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails and a lot of text messaging and like way more than usual because we're trying to sort of create this space where this stuff can come a little bit more organically uh, and i would say that was by far the biggest challenge in writing this book um can we talk for a second about romance? Because uh, the star-crossed love between Nim and North in this book is completely bewitching. It was bewitching in book one. It's on a whole new level in book two. Um, the two of you are obviously no stranger to writing compelling romantic pairings, but would, would you say this is the most romantic book you've written? And how do you make space for such a kind of epic style romance when you also have to juggle so much world building, action sequences, and science fiction elements going on and everything else. Um, how do you get that through line of romance to come through so strongly? I feel like hearing you list all that, I'm like, man, no wonder it was hard to write. That is impressive, you're right. Um, I mean, the, when we set out to write this book, we I look back now on, on past Amy and past Meg and I'm like, bold choice you made ladies, because the, the two, the brief we set ourselves was that we wanted to write the most romantic book we'd ever written. We wanted to really sort of write something for the people who loved these broken stars and the, the aching romance of that. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think the way that you fit the romance in, you know, the way the romance goes around all this, that other stuff though, is that everything, everything is filtered through the romance. Everything happens through the lens of the romance, the world building, the action, you know, their goals, everything they're trying to do happens through this one filter. And that means that instead of having to find a space amidst all those things to do the romance, the romance permeates all of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, without spoiling too much about what happens uh, in book two, there's, for example, a section where uh, North and Nim are sort of, for the first time, really talking to each other about the fact that they're into each other, but they're both essentially leaders of different worlds and often opposing worlds, and they have to face up in this book to the fact that, you know, they're forbidden to touch physically because of, you know, Nim's divinity and the rules surrounding that, but given the political landscape surrounding them, they're kind of forbidden to be emotionally attached. And they have to navigate that in this book. And it's funny because 
in book one, we had so much fun navigating the issue that they couldn't touch. And it's really like we got to book two and we were like, how can we make things even harder for them? How can we make this even more of a struggle? And I think that the natural tendency toward that is just because it's so much more rewarding in the end if there's been this struggle to, to get through. And uh, I don't know, not to draw parallels or anything, but I feel very proud of this book. And I know Amy does too, because of the struggles we went through writing it. Um, and I think that that's part of what makes it rewarding in the end. It 100% is. It's just, I mean, the impossibility of the romance in this book is like the angst level, right? Like the more impossible you make it, the more angst the reader feels, the more rewarding it is um, when you get, when they, when they get where you want them to be. So that was the most least spoilery way that I could say that. <laughs> uh, from romance to villainy. Um, so by the end of The Other Side of the Sky, we have our epic villain in Chara. In this book, she's downright terrifying. Like, she was already scary, but there were some moments where we're checking in with uh, Inchara in this book that I got chills because of just how ugh, scary she is. So I wanted to know what goes on, in, what goes into creating such a chilling villain and what challenges do you face writing a villain who is still complex and nuanced as a character? I think that the scariest villains are the ones that we can see ourselves in. I think that what makes them so scary is the fact that you know, there but for the grace of God, you know, it could be, it could be us. If we had had, you know, the disadvantages or the upbringing that Inshara had, you know, everything about her life has sort of led her to the place where she's at. And yeah, she has made some choices that some of us might've made differently. But in the end, I think that um, one of the things that makes her for me anyway, a compelling villain to write is that she is very human. You know, she's scary and she's powerful, but underneath it all, she's just kind of like a girl who like wants a family and like people to, to love her. And uh, I think we can all empathize with that and, and sort of see ourselves in it. I mean, the best villains are mirrors, essentially. Mm. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, she's very much a mirror to Nim. You know, there are so there are far, far more similarities between Inchara and Nim than there are differences. You know, they really are just a couple of sliding doors away from being the same person. And I always sort of take a moment to go inside them and be sympathetic to them as I write it, because you know, as as Meg said, you know, they're very human and. They, they do what they do because they believe in it because they have wants and needs exactly like we do. So I always try to sort of find a really sympathetic place inside myself where I understand why they're doing what they're doing and almost feel like they're right before I write them because, you know, that's where they are. That's what drives the decisions they make. Yeah. Well, it was, it was very well done. She's a masterful villain and that's all I can really say about that. Because again, spoilers. Uh, so I've mentioned, I think I mentioned to you when we spoke about the first book that this had reminded me a little bit just in the something about the world building of Isabel Carmody's Over Newton series. 
I think there's just something about, I feel that it's quite rare to find a world where you've got this kind of post-apocalyptic vibe to it. Like, well, there's a, something has happened to change civilization and it's all cloaked in mystery and um, you've got magic and religion working alongside science fiction. And that to me is just completely delicious and I never find as much of it as I would like. I'm building up to a question. And my question is, <laughs> um, what sort of drew you to creating that kind of a world and what kind of other books or movies may have inspired you in the creation of this world? Well, there's a reason that you don't find as much of it as you'd like, and it's because it turns out it's really hard. <laughs> it turns out it's really hard to do. <laughs> um, I think what drew it drew us to it is the fact that there isn't as much of it as we would like, because we love that too. I mean, anything, my favorite movie of all time is Contact, the movie starring Jodie Foster. And that movie is all about the intersection of sort of science fiction and faith. And as a kid, I saw it when I was maybe 11 and I was like, oh, I didn't know that you could look at those two things like at the same time and sort of like play them off of each other. And and I'm sure that Amy has her own, you know, version of, of that that drew her to it in the first place. But both of us have have definitely been always really fascinated at the ways and, and sort of mechanisms by which science fiction can interact with like all aspects of of the human experience. You can really look at pretty much anything through the lens of science fiction. Um, putting the fantasy in with it is tougher, I think, because the voices of fantasy and science fiction are so different. You know, when you read a fantasy novel versus when you read a science fiction novel, the language that you use is different. And that's why we ended up, I think, going with two different characters each from a different world because in Nim's chapters when you're telling the story from the perspective of a character raised in this fantasy world she will use the language of fantasy fiction whereas when you're in north's point of view you'll use the language of science fiction and you know bringing those two together worked really well for us thematically because hey we were trying to bring those two characters together as, as a romantic uh, couple uh. It works so well. Um, I love that you pulled out Ober Newton because that was one of my early reads as well. And, and Scatterlings by Isabel Carmody as well. You know, these, these books set after us. I think ever since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated by pictures of abandoned cities, but even more fascinated by images of people living in abandoned cities. You know, the, the what comes after of it. Is, has been everyone's got their catnip and that's definitely one for both yeah. of us I think yeah my very first series the Skylight trilogy is a post-apocalyptic fantasy it's like magic and, mm. and post-apocalyptic sort of uh, steampunk science fiction you know I think we've both always really really dug that yeah I remember the two of us sitting around together uh, as Meg was researching Skylark uh, watching these documentaries called, I think, Life After People. And, you know, I mean, I didn't have to be there. It wasn't my book. I just thought it was interesting. So I joined in. And the two of us would would sit there together and watch, you know, what would happen as the world crumbled. And, you know, I think kind of for us, what was missing was that this was life after people and we wanted to know what would happen to the people who came along after the crumbling and, and how they would move in and what they would do with those spaces. Yeah. 
Oh my God, I love it so much. I could just read exclusively that. I feel like reading uh, Beyond the End of the World has just put me in the mood for only that. And that's tough because <laughs> only that is not that broad. Like there's just... Not a big field. So in this age we're in where it feels like every good TV or movie that you can watch is based on a book, um, I'd like to talk about adaptations, potential adaptations. I could mm -hmm. so see this duology adapted as a kind of um, Studio Ghibli film. Um, but what would you, how would you like to see it adapted? Do you think it would be a good movie or better as a TV show or a graphic novel or like a musical? What would be your ideal? I mean, now you said musical. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> imagining the like Inshara cultist number as they like come prancing through the like rubble of the temple. I would be so into that. Right. And like, you know, North being lowered down from the rafters on a dodgy pulley in like the community production and then getting stuck halfway, just sort of swinging slowly back and forth. Like his glider costume, like hanging over him, like with suspenders, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Look, we thought a lot about Studio Ghibli as we wrote this book. You know, that was definitely one of our kind of aesthetic inspirations of and, and kind of mood inspirations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you imagine something like this being being put on the screen, I mean, one of the one of the challenges with any book is getting it to live up to what you imagine. But I think the I do wonder whether animation would be the way to do something like this, just because of the absolute mystery mm -hmm. of places like the forest sea and you know the 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 size of Nim's temple and you know I mean an island in the sky where North lives, you know, they're such yeah. deliberately fantastical images that, that I wonder whether we could ever make them, whether we can only ever perhaps draw them. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I think that a lot of, I remember when we were first just starting to do the world building for this series and we knew we wanted like a, a, a sky city and like a ground city. And we were sitting there being like, yeah, but how, but, but how is there a city in this? And it like took us a really long time to like get to the point where we like understood even what it would look like. Um, and I think that the thing that we ended up with is something that almost wouldn't, I, w I don't want to say it wouldn't work in live action because they can do, you know, amazing, amazing things now and things that look truly amazing. But I, I think in my mind, it was always kind of illustrated rather than, you know, photographic. Uh, in terms of the images that I was seeing. So, I mean, I think an animated thing would be awesome. But I do think it would have to be like a show rather than a movie. I don't think you could fit everything into one movie. Into, yeah, even even two movies for the two books. I'm not sure you could, uh, you'd have to like cut a, cut a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. And of course, as and authors, we're like, no, it's all important. <laughs> well, I, think I, mean, I think when you shorten it, you know, what you cut is the nuance and the theme. And so it just becomes, they don't get to touch for half an hour and then they do, and that's not. You know. No, it's gotta be a show. You're correct. It's, like it's, it's gotta be a season finisher, you know. And yeah. like, it's gotta be like the season finale that's the end of book one. I mean, you've gotta have, you know, there are gonna be people who pick it up now, who read book one and then immediately read book two. And that's fine, I wouldn't blame them, it's what I would do, but like, 
I have a special soft spot in my heart for the people like you, Sarah, who read book one and then had to sit with it <laughs> for like a year and a half until book two came out because that's really the way it's supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel like, well, and, you know. You gotta be left hanging. You lucky you rapists. You wouldn't be as, uh, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do a movie where the, the end was such a cliffhanger. You wouldn't, you know, Hollywood would fire you. I don't know. Anyone who comes to this series late enough to go straight from book one to book two, you will never know the pain. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I would love to... I, I totally see it as an animated show. I don't know if either of you have ever watched Dragon Prince on Netflix. Yeah. I reckon Netflix should make it into that type of a series and I would be oh, I would love that. That would be so cool. Yeah. Call us Netflix. Yeah. Let's <laughs> make it happen. Um, so belief is a really strong theme in this book. Um, in particular, the importance of having someone or something to believe in and what you can achieve when you have that. And I wondered... If both of you would mind sharing a time in your life when you place belief in something that may have seemed impossible, like, is this something that every writer faces when they learn your book, for example? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that really uh, has surprised, delighted, horrified me over the years is how every single time I start a new book, I hit a point where I'm like, well, this is crap. This is not going anywhere. I have forgotten how to do this. I've written my last book. I don't know what's happened, but whatever magic I had is gone and everything's over and that's the end. Every single time, every single, you would think eventually I would get to a point where I could just write a book and like not have this crisis of faith, but it happens every single time. And it happens to Amy too, because you know, the thing is when this happens to us, we go to each other. We go, I don't know what's happened everything's followed apart. I can't do it anymore. I'm sorry. You're going to have to write the next one by yourself. You know, I mean, it's, it gets very dramatic in our heads, but uh, the nice thing is when we're writing with a partner, we have somebody there to be like, come on, don't you remember when this happened literally exactly a year ago when we were writing the last book, you know, we can kind of pull each other out of that place, that sort of dark place where you're like, oh, actually, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Uh, and I think that that's an experience every writer can relate to is that that period of doubt and uh, a sort of lack of faith in yourself. What would be your main advice yeah. to people? Our whole writing experience together, it started with Meg had just been to this uh, writing program called Odyssey and had come home and was doing what I think pretty much I've now realised every single person who goes to an intensive writing program does, which is you come home and you've just, and, you know, not a thousand rules because there aren't any, but if you, you think, oh, no, this teacher said not to start a book like that. And then, oh, this teacher said not to end a chapter like that. And, and I think I've realised now for everyone, there's this, this short period where they just, you know, get all their arms and legs wrapped around themselves and fall over. And so maybe it's a short that circuit and you're like, like, I can't, can't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the, the, centipede who someone says how on earth do you walk with a hundred legs and as soon as she asks herself she doesn't know anymore and falls down but to make had been doing this for a little while and you know had hit the point where she was like well I gave myself a little while after I got home from from Odyssey and it hasn't worked and it turns out I can't write at all so I will now go and get a job and I was over here in Australia with my um 
you know, watching my darling introvert friend thinking, if you go and get this job, I just don't know if you're going to have the emotional energy to write at the end of the day. And you have to write to how we're going to do this. And then one day Meg sat down and wrote the first couple of chapters or something and emailed them to me and went, "Mm, I don't know if that's anything. But it was the first thing that she had sent me, that she had actually let me read in the months since she had come home. And I read it and I went and talked to my husband. And when I say talk to my husband, I mean my email to Meg was less than five minutes later. Uh, So it was not a long talk. And we said, all right, what you need to do is not get a job. What you need to do is come to Australia. We've got a bedroom for you, rent free for a year, get on a plane and come and write a book. But if you play computer games all day, instead of writing a book, you will answer to me, young lady, Uh, but come and write a book. And the thing is, it was a leap of faith for both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also sort of wasn't, you know, Meg was leaping to come. and, And at this point, you know, there was, she hadn't written a book yet. So, you know, Meg didn't know if she could write a book, but in that moment she backed herself and bought a plane ticket and we backed her and it didn't take her a year. It took her a few months to write a book and sign with a literary agent. So, you know, it turns out it, yes. it was that we didn't require that much faith after all. Well, by the end of the year, it. by the end of the year that mm-hmm. she invited me to stay with her, I had not only signed for my first uh, solo trilogy, but we together had signed for our first uh, mm-hmm. co-authored trilogy. So like yeah. it was a leap of faith that paid off in six books, six contracted yeah. books. So. And, and I wasn't even trying to become a published author when she moved to see us. So and you yeah. saw how gloriously easy it was and we were just like, oh yeah, that's, that's for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would come home from work every day and be like, she doesn't look like she did much today. I I should get that job instead. Uh, No, not true, dear reader, not true at all. But, but, you know, it was a a giant leap of faith from both of us. And yet I think somehow it didn't particularly feel like one. I think if you've got the right level of trust, then, you know, you know. I love that story. That's beautiful. What a beautiful way to, to take that leap of faith together. And now here you are, all these years later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, Three series in and working on the next. This dovetails really perfectly into my next question, which was going to be, what is your, like, favourite thing about writing together? I think Apart from that bit that Meg mentioned, where you get to go to the other person and go, it's a disaster, and they go, it's not. Because that's (laughs) got to be a protean finish. (laughs) Yeah, that one, that part is definitely pretty good. I think my favorite part is that um, when we're writing together, sort of first and foremost, our audience is actually each other. It's not some future reader or our publisher, editor, or agent or anything. It's my audience is Amy and Amy's audience is me. And so we write things that we know the other person's going to like and we know each other really well. So it's like having one of my authors like personally write me delicious things that I then get to like write fan fiction for, send to that favorite author. And then overnight they like write me more stuff. I mean, so cool. It's so, um, I don't know, it, it sort of scratches all the itches in terms of like wanting certain kinds of fiction. Like she'll write me the characters that I like and she'll write me the little sort of catnipy tropes and things that because we have a lot of the same favorite books and a lot of the same favorite movies and a lot of the same sort of favorite 
uh, tropes and plot lines and twists and things. So we know how to write for each other. And I think that that, you know, no matter how hard any other part of writing the book gets, that part is always fun. And I think that keeping things fun, even when we've been so we've written however many books together and we've been doing it for however many years, the fact that it's still surprising and fun and delightful to open up. I mean, I when I get a chapter from Amy, I don't even wait to get to my desk to read it. I open it up when I'm in bed in the morning <laughs> and I read it like first thing so that I can still like, you know, text her and be like, oh my God, you know, when I get to the end of the chapter. And I just, I love that. I love that it's still fun. Yeah. And I think there's, we now, one of the things that I enjoy now that I think I have enjoyed increasingly over the years is the fact that we know each other's writing so intimately now that we can set each other up that, mm-hmm. you know, one of us, I, I still think back to the moment we knew that we had achieved that was actually, I think a moment in undying the second book from our last series where one of us set up a chapter end where a character had a, a tear trickling down their cheek and the yeah. other one understood without any, because I can't even remember which one of us was which in this. In this. It was me with the tear and you with the catching with the, the tear. Tear, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Meg forgot when she was sending me the chapter, she forgot to add the notes being like, oh, I thought it would be a nice romantic way for him to start doing the whole you know swiping the thumb up the cheek to catch the tear and then it could lead to this this and this um like just forgot to tell me and then so I I was I looked at it and went oh well this is obviously what's being set up for me and and did it and sent it back saying I hope this was what you had in mind and Meg's like yeah that's what I said oh I didn't say oh we've just reached we've merged but you know I think it's it is at this point a little bit like, you know, when you watch a trapeze act and someone does the giant swing and they throw themselves off the trapeze to be caught by someone else. And when we're watching, we think what an enormous risk they're taking, but they know they're not taking a risk. They know that they will be caught because they're always caught. And I think that's very much how it feels now. You know, we, we know what each other knows how to do, we know how to set each other up, and we know what will happen next. That's so beautiful. I love the idea that you've created this sort of mini two-person hive mind when you write together so that you don't even have to explain where you want it to go next. You just sort of pick up the thread and run with it. Um, And I think that comes through in the writing. It's like your books... Some co-written books, you get a real feel that there's two people telling the story. But um, I never feel that when you two write together. It just feels, if you asked me who wrote what character, I wouldn't really be able to say. Like, I just feel like it's all, it's both sides of the story is full of both of you. That's a huge compliment. So I've just got two questions left. Um, The last one is just like a very fanny question from me, which is I'm not, I've finished young end of the world now I don't feel like I'm quite ready to say goodbye and whilst this is a very complete story and wraps everything up really perfectly for these characters I can't help asking would you ever consider returning to the world um maybe with different characters absolutely I mean I don't know that we ever will but yeah it's definitely something I would revisit someday uh if but it's all sort of dependent upon like will would a story show up 
in that world that we wanted that we both wanted to tell i mean the thing is we have so many we have like a backlog of stories and ideas that we want to tell together so if we did come back to it it would probably be quite a while because you know we've got a lot of other things that uh that are sort of clamoring for our attention um but uh it's not like it's definitely not one of those where sometimes you get to the end of a book or a series and you're like okay i'm never going back there again that was really hard i can't i can't even i'm not even gonna look behind me I, I do not have that feeling about this world. Yeah. I would be very happy to come back someday. Yeah, I think, you know, if it would be fascinating to go back and either set something quite a long time before, before. or after mm -hmm. this series. Yep. Uh, and I think there's also... Yeah, we're thinking you know, the same thing. One day, yeah, you know, but perhaps one day if we're invited to the right type of anthology, you know, perhaps there could be a short story <laughs> in it. You know, there's there's mm -hmm. certainly... Yeah. yeah, there's certainly lots of things you could write, but we also, you know, as you always must, made sure that we wrapped this in such a way that if we never went back again, everything would be there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just being greedy. <laughs> Good, be greedy. That's a compliment. <laughs> um, and then last up is the question we always like to finish on, or I always like to finish on particularly when speaking to people whose uh, work I like to uh, devour, is as much as you're able to talk about it, what's up next for both of you? Well, what, we're not yeah. allowed to talk about what's up together. We're, yeah. we're, we're in the, the sort of, I wouldn't say the early stages of development, I'd say the, no. the mid-stage of development. We, yeah. We have a date every Friday morning Aussie time. We, you know, we get together for, for a half day and, and work on it. And mm -hmm. it's, and it's great for me because it's like, I'm wrapping my week up with this thing. That's basically just playtime with Meg, it's so fun. <laughs> you know, it's all so the fun, fun bits and none of the hard bits. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's definitely one of, um, it like comes from a place. I mean, I guess like all of our stuff does, but it comes from a place of something that we absolutely love both of us and wanted to like play with. So it's something that's been very exciting. And anytime anything has been hard in previous, we're like, just wait until we can write, insert the title here. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's something that it's also, I will, okay, I can tell you this. It is also a romance. <gasps> mm -hmm. Excellent. Shocking, yeah. right? <laughs> um, yeah. But it will also be, I think a little different than any of the ones we've done before. Uh, so I think, people will be psyched people will be psyched for it yeah absolutely um which is all very mysterious but it will be worth the wait um, yes <laughs> very tantalizing and, <laughs> um and i've got i mean i won't talk about it too much because it's it's still more than a year away but my my next book apart from that will be uh my first ever solo ya yeah. uh the isles of the gods which is a fantasy and it's I'm just, I've got to I've got to figure out the good pitch for it but right now I just That's sort of brilliant. almost give you like a list of the ingredients I used to bake it you know it's got like a spoiled prince and a sailor girl who did not ask to have him inconvenience her and a scholar who did not volunteer to go on a quest and will be writing a letter to someone about it as soon as he works out who that is and it's got sailing and gangsters and magic and 
Another great intersection of magic and sort of a world setting where you wouldn't necessarily expect magic. So it's like another really great marriage yeah. of, of magic. And I won't say science fiction because it's not science fiction, but it's like a different era of history. Yeah, than you it's got a kind of most a, fantasy settings. Yeah, it's got a kind of the twenties tinge to it, but. Mm -hmm because it is a world full of magic, that means that some technology is running ahead and some technology is running behind of the way it did in our world, because of course magic changes things. So it's, um, it's enormously fun to write. You kind of had me at gangsters. <laughs> I, love, yeah. I love that. Idea. Very fun gangster girl who just wants to burn down the world. And I like her a lot. She yeah. is another example of someone to whom I'm extremely sympathetic, but she's evil. <laughs> oh, she's that's evil. She makes some choices that are interesting. I wouldn't say yeah. evil. She makes some choices. <laughs> she's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah, aren't we all? Uh, that sounds that sounds wonderful. Both the um, mysterious, unnamed, tantalizing project and Isle of the Gods. I can't wait for both. So we're, we're basically out of time. So Amy and Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you both, as always. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, uh, it's been a great joy talking to you. And for everyone listening, you can grab your copy of Beyond the End of the World, as well as all of Amy Kaufman's and Megan Spooner's spectacular backlist titles, and all of which I highly recommend, at your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Now over to Sarah's interview with Vanessa Lynn, author of Only a Monster. I'm Sarah McDooling and I'm over the moon to be talking today with author Vanessa Lem about her stunning YA fantasy debut, Only a Monster. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's really fun to be here. Oh, so for everyone listening, before I start throwing a million questions at you about the book, could you just sort of give the people listening a, a vague idea of what they can expect from Only a Monster? Okay, so Only a Monster is a young adult fantasy about a monster girl whose summer is absolutely ruined when the cute guy at work turns out to be a monster slayer. So it's got a time travel battle, it's got this Captain America-like heroic antagonist, it's got a monster point of view. Um, I think if you like Doctor Who, if you kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Holly Black, Cassandra Clare, you might also like Only a Monster. That was really good and also somewhat partially covers my next question, which was <laughs> one thing I'm fresh off reading Only a Monster. Um, I had intended to read it nice and slowly over a public holiday and instead I picked it up the night before the public holiday and would not be, I couldn't put it down. I read the whole thing in one night and it was amazing. And so with it very fresh in my memory, I want to just say to you that what's so striking here is that um, this feels really fresh. Like it doesn't feel like, it doesn't remind me of many things, but it gives me all the things I love. And so it's kind of unusual to say that in these days because we've got this culture of nostalgia and there is some great 
90s nostalgia in the book, which we'll get to, but in terms of everything being a reboot and a retelling and a genre match and a, a new spin on an old theme, all of which are things I love, this felt like it really was doing something different. Oh, thank you but so then, much. I hope that makes me really happy. <laughs> yeah, but then when something hits all of your buttons in the way that of everything that you love but doesn't actually remind you of any of those things, it really makes me wonder where your inspirations were coming from. So you listed a bunch <laughs> of things just then that are all, funnily enough, favourite things of mine. So it's, I'm really starting to understand why I love the book so much. But can you speak more at length about maybe some of the first spark of inspiration for the story and influences you might have had. Yes, yes. So um, it's interesting that you say that it was, I guess, full of things that you like because what I did at the very, very, very beginning was make a big list of all the things that I like. So it was, I was like, oh, it looks like I really love time travel. I like like enemies to lovers. Um, I was like, I like, I guess, like a marginalised point of view, like a monstrous or like, I guess, unusual point of view. So I put all of the things that I love together and out of that, I started building, I guess, a world, characters. So I feel like they have the feels of the things that I really love, but it, it's true. It doesn't, it's like the world building itself, I hope is pretty original. Um, and then I guess the actual inspiration for the premise um, was that when I was growing up, I really loved like big blockbuster films, I guess TV shows, um, the kinds of narratives where good guys and bad guys are really clearly demarcated. Um, but I would find that there weren't that many heroes that looked like me in those shows and films. Um, and then weirdly, sometimes the bad guys would look like me. So I've got this line in the book about uh, how in the movies after the bad guys have been killed, the camera moves away from them and follows the hero. But sometimes I just find myself aware of like, just there's only a couple of people on screen who look like me and they're all lying dead on the ground. So I feel like, oh, that makes me really aware of that perspective. And it makes me feel like, oh, my premise came out of the feeling of like, wouldn't it be interesting to write about one of those like heroes that are really like portrayed by the narrative as really good and decent and upright. Um, wouldn't it be interesting to write about that character from a different point of view, like a monster's point of view? So that's where the inspiration came from, all of these things. <laughs> I, I love the way that you're kind of, preempting all of my questions because literally the next question I was going to ask dovetails into everything that you're just saying which is that a big theme of this book is kind of what makes someone a hero and what makes someone a, a monster or a villain. Um, I have always sort of had a real I've always gravitated to villains like I've always would find myself even as a kid wondering like why are they so bad and maybe they can be good like um and so would you say i mean you've already partially answered this but would you say you're more attracted to the archetype of the villain or the hero or do you prefer a good anti-hero and what are some of your favorites um that is a really good question i what i actually love the most is like that central dynamic of rivalry so i like it when there's an anti-hero and a hero and they're both in the book and you can kind of understand both of their points of view but they're also really unrecked the kind of feeling that i love the most um when i think of narratives so gosh i'm really thinking of ones at the moment one of my favorites um i feel like i <laughs> I feel like I really like people. I, I guess I, I even like dynamics like the master and the doctor and Doctor Who. It's like, not that he's like 
not that that is reconcilable. I feel like he's definitely a bad guy. Whereas I feel like in my book, um, although Joan's definitely a monster and she does, that's my main character. Um, although my main character Joan is definitely a monster and she does use her monstrous powers. Um, I definitely tried to portray her in a way where you kind of understand why she's using these terrible powers, why she's doing the things she's doing. Um, and hopefully also understand why the hero is doing what he's doing um, in trying to rid the world of the of monsters. Yes, there's something in that dynamic that's just so like a two-sided coin because Joan, I never doubt Joan's goodness and her heroism the whole way through, despite the fact she has this monstrous power and does use it. Um, she is doing quite terrible things actually. <laughs> Yeah, but she's a hero in her goals, like in her like in in her motivations. And um and so and then you see, you know, as the story progresses, you see that the the villain who's a hero. <laughs> like the whole thing is very like it's it's very beautifully done and you kind of get the sense like with most amazing rivalries that they exist they wouldn't they exist because of each other. So they're just honestly two sides of the same. So true. I thought um, the is interesting without the other person. Yes, yes. Having said that, my favourite character in the whole book is outside of it, and that's Aaron. It's not that interesting for people who haven't read it to hear me go on and on about a character they haven't met yet. But I just want to say, if you happen to be reading this book and you, if you were listening to this podcast and you have read the book, I, I'm for Aaron, I die for Aaron. <laughs> I definitely wanted to create a counterweight to Nick the human hero. So I've also got um, this guy called Aaron. Uh, he's completely a monster. He's very ruthless. Um, and at the beginning of the book, he leaves my main character, Joan, for dead. He let, he's like, his family's about to kill her. And he's like, okay, bye. <laughs> um, so that's the best introduction, right? <laughs> um, but they're kind of forced to work together because they're, I guess, mutually bound by their common enemy, which is the hero. They've got to run for their life at one point and then they've got to work together to try and save their families and themselves from the hero. So after that, I feel like they do, they start to bond and they kind of start to realise that they are kind of more similar than they probably initially realised. I feel like they have quite a similar personality, even though it's not that clear at first. Like they're both very loyal to their families. Um, I think they're both quite rule abiding naturally, although um, by circumstances, Joan's forced to be quite rule breaking. <laughs> but yeah, they're fairly similar. I don't think many people could pull that off, but um, you pulled it off brilliantly. And there's like a thing, a thing that I often like love when I encounter in books is when there's an idea for a magic system or a world that feels so logical that you can't believe that you haven't read it before and so I want to talk about time travel <laughs> um, and how difficult it is to write a time travel because everyone sort of approaches the theory of how it would work a little bit differently and um, there's always like anytime you're entering a book with time travel in it there's always the rules are slightly different so I just wondered how you landed on yours and most specifically like the, the magic system element of this is a book in where time travelers steal time from people, which is mind-blowingly logical, and yet I've never read that before. So where did that come from? 
Um, thank you. Yeah, so in the book, um, monsters can steal life from the human lifespan and then they can use to travel in time. So if you steal a year from a human, you can travel a year um, and they can like build it up so they could steal a few days, a few days, a few days from each person and then travel back to the 70s and have a party or whatever they want to do. Um, yeah, so I came up with that idea. Um, as I said, I'd made this big list of all the things I like and time travel was clearly really prominent um, when I when I realised I was making patterns. I was like, oh, all these books that I like and TV shows that I like include time travel. I guess I really like time travel. <laughs> um, so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? Um, I'd already had that premise of um, a monster versus a monster slayer. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the monsters could time travel and if their monstrous power was that they could steal life from humans to do it? Um, and it's so true. You're so right. It was very difficult to write. <laughs> Jeff, I didn't realise. <laughs> I thought it would be. I thought it would be fine because all the books that I liked with time travel seemed like they did it really easily. Um, but actually, it was a lot of work. Um, and I, I did a lot of world building development after I had made that list. So I was thinking about things like, you know, I, I don't want to. Monsters to be in the, I don't want a monster to be in the same time twice, like to meet themselves. So then you start to make rules about kind of, I guess, the way you want the world to work in the book. Um, but yeah, definitely very difficult. Um, you, you lose things like time jeopardy where you're like, oh, we must do this thing in the next 20 minutes or everyone's going to die because you can be like, oh, but wouldn't you just time travel out of that situation? So I was really having to do a lot of work around, I guess, um making it so that you i had i guess forward momentum without things like time jeopardy yes i was i was really blown away by it because i feel like a common element of most time traveling stories is that people are trying to you know change something so to, to help their future or stop something from happening and like you somehow managed to say really early on sorry that's not the type of time travel we're talking about. But P.S. The whole book is going to be about changing the timeline, even though even though it's like you're like big no, we can't do it. But maybe maybe we can. can't seem to eat the otherwise. Why are you turning the page? Yeah, it's really like I I just the way that you have um, balanced and sort of toyed around with people's expectations, not just with the time travel, but just kind of with all the tropes and everything in the book is really. Wonderful. It was a delight to read. I think part of that was part of my joy reading, just like, oh, com like completely being unexpected, consistently being surprised when I was reading. Um, and like, you know, in my job, I just I read such a lot of YA. And so like, do I find that this doesn't happen that often? So now I've got a, a list and you're on this list because I feel when most authors have a lot of world building to do and they um, need to kind of usher readers into this world that's you know particularly in the case of only a monster it's our world but not um, so you really have to explain all those differences it slows down the pace generally but not in the case of only a monster because you catapult people into this story and somehow whilst it pushes along at this incredible speed because it's very action-packed it's like go 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 from from the start you still do all the world building and you still like set up all of this stuff. And I just wondered, you know, is there, is it something that you set out to do? Is it a, a difficult thing to keep that pace so fast whilst you're also doing all that other work? Um, yeah, thank you so much for that. That makes me really, really, really happy because I put a lot of work <laughs> 
I guess into the pace, but I, in general, just try to make it feel page turny. Um, I feel like people's attention is really valuable, especially now, like everyone's so busy. Um, there are so many competing things that they could be doing. So I feel like if you're reading my book, um, I want to give you like, I'm going to make it as effortless as possible so that, you know, you feel that feeling of like, oh, I could just turn the page. I could just turn the page. Um, and it's true. I put, yeah, I really did a lot of work to try and make that happen. So yeah, I'm really happy <laughs> that it read as fast paced. <laughs> really, and honestly, like I thought I would just get a little few chapters in before bed and then the next thing I knew, <laughs> I was finished the book. <laughs> it was quite late at night. <laughs> but I love that. I love when a book really just sweeps you away like that. Um, you. So I was going to now ask a few sort of more generalised questions about writing and then we'll finish up with another Only a Monster release. That sounds great. <laughs> but I just, um, I wanted to ask a sort of simple question, but I love hearing people answer it, which is what do you like best about writing? Oh my gosh, I feel like you can probably tell from reading the book that I love world building the most. Like I love it when... Um, the part you're in the part of the book where you can just come up with more ideas, new ideas, you can put something new in the world, you can make things up. It's my absolute favorite thing. Um, sometimes I'll do brainstorming with, um, with my critique partner and all I'll do is just be like generating new ideas for the world. Like what, what I've got like monster, different monster families in the book and each one has a different power. So I'd be brainstorming, well, what do you think? This power is um, what is this sigil? It's like all this really fun stuff that you kind of can't believe. Sometimes you're getting to do like as a job as well as for fun. <laughs> but yeah, for, um, for sure, my favorite part of writing is world building. And do you do all of that world building before you start writing, or is it a process where you kind of have to figure some of it out along the way? I guess this is my first book, so I only know the process I used for this book. Um, I don't know what I might use next time, but. Um, certainly for this world, I did lots and lots and lots of development work before I even started writing it. So um, I did lots of work on the world, on the characters, um, I guess on their backstories and their relationships. Um, and uh, by the time I actually started writing the manuscript, I had this whole huge world in my head. And then I had to figure out how to make it a coherent story um, and how to, I guess, include as uh, you know how, how you can't include all the world building <laughs> once you've come up with a big world like that but you can include some of it in each book I suppose you can let it unfold <laughs> um how long did it take all that for you to write this first book so long so the manuscript itself just writing took me four years um I was also working so I was doing it in getting up I was doing that 5am getting up in the morning wow. work, <laughs> writing on Saturdays um but before that I actually did a couple of years just of thinking about the book just thinking about the rules of time travel what the world might look like um and I feel like that, that's been really good um, when it comes to writing the sequels because I've already got all of the world in my head and there's so much more story I know that I want to tell. Um, so that's worked out really well. But I, having said that, I don't know if it's the most efficient <laughs> way to write. And I don't know if I would do that again. But I guess that's how I've done it for the first time. And did you always know that you wanted to write a book? Um, I mean, I feel like so many of us just really foster a dream to write a book, <laughs> but in my mind, that was like 
dreaming to be an astronaut, which I would also, I mean, I also like to be an astronaut, <laughs> but it, it just <laughs> seemed just as unrealistic. Um, but then um, actually a couple of my friends started to, like, to publish uh, books and I was like, oh, maybe I could have a go at that. Um, I feel like sometimes you just need to see a model of somebody else doing something to think, oh, maybe I could do that too. Um, so I'm really grateful to those friends who went first. <laughs> <laughs> and showed you that it, it could be possible. Showed me it was yeah. possible. <laughs> uh, so what advice would you give to aspiring writers and then as kind of an addendum, it might be the same thing, but did you ever get the piece of advice about writing that really stayed with you? Um, I'll say the piece of advice first. Um, and it was from Karen Joy Fowler. I did a workshop with her um, actually in America, I was so lucky. Um, and she gave this piece of advice that has stuck with me. And it's just imagine more deeply. And whenever I get stuck, um, yeah, she said, don't worry about the words, just imagine you're in the scene. And that's what I do now when I get stuck. I don't think about the words. I just really, really picture myself in the scene with the characters in the setting. And sometimes I find that that really does help me get unstuck. I feel like um, that there are already other writers in your life and you don't even know it. Uh, when I sort of started to tell my friends and family that, you know, oh, I'm writing a book. So many of them were like, I'm writing a book. <laughs> so that was really nice to make those connections. And after that, we'd have, you know, some, like, sometimes like a writing date where we just write together. Um, so yeah, just like have a chat with people you already know and love and, and maybe they're already writing. It kind of just helps to have um, somebody else in your life who's also doing this big project. <laughs> it makes you feel a bit less alone while you're writing. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, okay, now, I, bringing things back to Only a Monster, I'm going to talk in a very spoiler-free way about the ending. So don't worry if you're listening. I'm not going to say what happens in the ending. I'm just going to say that the book ends, you know, in a very kind of, it has a sense of completion, like the story has come full circle and this is a sort of an ending, but, but also you very much want the story to continue. So I wanted to, A, sort of thank you because I hate being left on a really horrible cliffhanger where it's like the to-be-continued cliffhanger where you're halfway through something happening and then it just ends. This isn't like that, but also I will be devastated if there aren't many, many, many more books because I'm not ready to leave this world or to say goodbye to these characters. I feel so like um, it's wonderful to hear you talk about the sequels are you able to tell us what's up next in terms of, do you have an idea how many books it will be? Um, you do? Uh, please tell me anything that you're able to tell us. Please tell us. Uh, so there's going to be three books in the series. Um, I've already drafted the second book and I'm editing it at the moment. Um, and yeah, I, I also really um, struggle with cliffhanger endings. So this doesn't have a, the first book does not have a cliffhanger ending. It's got like a proper ending with a denouement, but there's definitely threads that, um, that keep going into book two, their book three. And I'm really excited because I had so many more, um, I guess, the first book is full of a few twists and turns and the second book has also got some twists and turns and I'm really excited for people to read those as well. <laughs> I mean, again, and I'll tread really lightly, just because of the way the, the book ends, you can already, like, you already want to know what will happen next with certain characters because of where things have, have ended. I should just back away from this because I feel like I'm so close to spoiler territory that it's dangerous, but I'm so pleased to hear that. It's a perfect, really emotionally satisfying ending. But as you say, there's all these threads 
so that as you finish the book, you're like, oh, but what about X and Y and Z? And I'm so, I'm glad to hear that X, Y and Z are going to be coming for us. I mean, when I had when I had had that giant weld in my head, um, I had thought that I would get to tell this whole story, um, which I realised later would have to be a trilogy in one book. I hadn't realised actually how short a book is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had, I guess, always conceptualised it as being a, a, a larger story than book one. <laughs> Good heavens, there's so much happens in this book. I can't imagine you being able to squeeze in one more plot point, let alone no like, two more books worth of plot points. Um, but yes. I think we're sort of, we're wrapping, we're, we're wrapping up now because we've gone a little bit over time. But I just wanted to really, really thank you because this was a joyous reading experience for me and I'm so excited that Only Monster is about to be going out into the world for people. Um, quickly before we end, like how does it, how does it feel? Because you, you're a debut author, how, what's the feeling? Um, it feels so amazing. I remember when I first sold my book, it felt so surreal that I kept thinking, maybe I'm going to wake up from this. Maybe I'm in a coma. Maybe I'm in a coma and I'm going to wake up and this won't have happened. But it's definitely happening. It's coming out on the 1st of February. <laughs> um, it's on my bookshelf. Um, yeah, I feel so excited. Um, it's really a dream come true, beyond a dream come true. It's also a beautiful looking book. It's a really lush, fancy cover, um, I think in all senses of the word, a beautiful book. <laughs> I feel like I should also shout out the cover artist. Um, her name's Avian Tan and she's also Australian. So that I really love that. <laughs> it's a stunning, I, I gasped when I saw it. Me too. <laughs> um, it's very beautiful. And there's, it's also, I just feel like for people listening, if you haven't encountered this book or read the blurb or anything, has this for an amazing tagline. Um, in every story there is a hero and a monster. She is not the hero. Like, ah, don't you, I like, that's an amazing tagline. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, Vanessa, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and so wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was super fun. <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased. For me too. Um, and for everyone listening, you can grab your copy of Only a Monster by Vanessa Lamb, and I highly recommend that you do, um, after February 1st at your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thanks to Amy Kaufman, Megan Spooner and Vanessa Lamb. You can find links to all of the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next podcast where we'll be discussing the books that we are reading at the moment. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading.